Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. For today's episode, we're bringing you a conversation with Dr. Jason Whiting, a professor and program director in the Marriage and Family Therapy Program at Brigham Young University. Jason received his PhD from Michigan State University and is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's also the author of Love Me True, Overcoming the Surprising Ways We Deceive in Relationships. Jason's research has centered primarily around unhealthy relationships, and so as a married couple, it was really fascinating to hear Jason's insights about what helps make a marriage thrive. We found Jason to be so personable and insightful and fun to talk with. Some of our favorite topics of discussion included the Gottman Ratio, which is the interesting research that's been done showing that healthy and lasting relationships often have at least five positive interactions for every one negative interaction. We heard about red flags to be aware of before marriage, some of Jason's go-to marriage advice to newlyweds, and what to do if you're noticing unhealthy dynamics in your own relationship, especially around conflict, and what you can do about it. We're so grateful to Jason for coming on the podcast, and we really hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. And with that, we'll jump right in. All right. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. We're, Good to be here with you both. Yeah, thank you. There are so many things that we can talk about and we're excited to talk about, but Tim and I just finished a memoir about a, a woman's first year of marriage and she uh-huh. she kind of interweaves these these um, little bits of marriage advice that were given to her on her wedding day. And so we've been thinking a lot about this and some of the advice is just like awful advice. And so we just thought it would be fun to start with you um, and just ask, what would you write in somebody's book? If you if you had to give somebody like a one-liner advice, it's what a, would you say? It's, I, I would start with get to know each other really well before you get married. And, and so maybe that's not a wedding day <laughs> advice. Like, yeah. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> because if you're, if you're already jumping in at that point, it's too late. But people often do rush that process a little bit, especially mm. in Latter-day Saint yeah. culture. And, totally. And, and the only reason I say that is because love is a powerful, heady thing. And sometimes people will move fast and they're excited. But in, and um, what you don't want to have is unpleasant surprises in the marriage. And another thing that happens too is unhealthy relationships, abusive relationships are often characterized by moving really fast and flattery and intensity really? and, and hey, I just can't live without you and let's get together and let's move in together and let's get married. So um, it is worth taking time to get to know each other in various situations, whether that's stress or yeah. working through differences, hurt feelings. So that's a maybe pre-marriage advice on the uh, at the point of marriage. Be ready to be patient and flexible and um, humble and right. Yeah. I, you use oh sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to ask. You use the word love, and you said it can be a heady thing. There's this other term, infatuation, mm-hmm. which I would be curious what's really going on. Maybe it. See, I, I don't know if this is a specialty of yours, but it just sort of well, occurs to me. Yeah. So infatuation is the the kind of biological process that gets people going and gets people interested in each other. And that can be a good start, but it can also be a temporary thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I think, you know, anyone who has been in a in a serious relationship probably recognizes that 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 period that feels like the opposite of wanting to take it slow and get to know each other. It's like you you everything biologically is telling you that this should be fast and now and hurry. And there it's it's hard to like be reasonable, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways, it feels like you're kind of on this high. Mm-hmm. And 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 so anyone who 
as a, you know, I'm thinking especially as a parent or a friend who can see what's happening, who can see that you're rushing in out of this whirlwind of emotion. They may want to help you slow down and, and take a breath and really get to know each other. But, but I would imagine that for anybody who's in that space, you feel only resistance to somebody who tells you to slow down. And so what, what would you say, you know, to parents or to friends who can see this happening and who maybe are even seeing some red flags that are invisible mm -hmm. to somebody in the relationship? You know, how can you, how can you influence, or is it even possible to influence the situation once it's there? I would just say it's, it's great to have passion and it's great to have attraction and, and those kinds of infatuation. It's, it's fun, but that's just one side of, that's your heart that's operating. And then you need to engage the head a little bit and say, okay, let's think this through and let's decide, you know, is this practical and are we a good fit? And have we taken the time to get to know those things? So, so coming back to your question about a friend or a parent, you're, you're right to say that they probably aren't going to have, um, control over the situations, much to some parents, um, you know, yeah. chagrin, because I, I do get those calls sometimes. I see my kid and, and she's in this really unhealthy situation and how do I help? Mm -hmm. I think the best thing is to ask good questions, is to be caring mm -hmm. yourself and to set up a place that somebody could come and talk through those things. Because if you try to clamp down, especially if somebody's in an unhealthy relationship, they will probably retreat more because the unhealthy partner uh, you know, may well be encouraging that as well. And I've seen that many times. Yeah. And I'll say too, you know, part of my responses are biased here because I study unhealthy relationships. I study control and abuse. So I, I'm often very cautious about these kinds of things. Yeah. So, yeah. Can you address specifically, because you have, uh, you have this expertise and you're, and you're approaching this topic also as a Latter-day Saint, how do you see this um, doctrine of the law of chastity playing in relationships? Like, do you, do you feel like that that's putting pressure on couples that maybe they don't even recognize that's, 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 um, that is actually the impetus for wanting to get married fast? Like, is this really a, about sex? And yeah. that's hard to see when you're in the middle of it. And sure. would removal of the law of chastity actually encourage healthier courtships? Yeah, it's a, it's a question that um, comes up a lot in Latter-day Saint culture. Yeah. You know, are people just getting married fast because they're frisky and they just can't wait yeah. any longer? Yeah. But the truth is, um, it's, it's good to have those kinds of breaks on in some mm -hmm. ways because it helps you develop those other areas of your relationship. It helps you decide, are we really friends? Do we like hanging out together or is it just a physical thing? Mm -hmm. I can think of a client, a couple of, that came <laughs> to see me a while ago. They had both been married before. Now they were dating. And they were really struggling to not keep jumping in the sack together because they were had this strong physical attraction. They kind of knew that they were putting the cart before the horse because they didn't even really know if they liked each other that much. That's what they were still trying to figure out. Hmm. But but yes, sometimes people will say we really love each other or even I've had a revelation and it might just be what we call hormonal revelations. <laughs> you know? Um, it's just they're they having a feeling That's a really for sure, useful phrase but uh, it's not necessarily <laughs> spiritual feeling it might be more physical feeling and like i said that's legit but it's only one side of a lot of different things that you want yeah. to consider so i don't you know taking away the law of chassis wouldn't solve the problem i mean if you look at other folks in the world who would have different <laughs> values around that it's not that they have um better uh better success rates in marriage and there's some interesting research a lot of people who move in together um, do it sort of impulsively. They're just like, hey, we're fired up. We're excited. And they, if they do that without being thoughtful, um, it's called sliding versus deciding. You know, it's just mm -hmm. sort of easier for some people. Those aren't 
more healthy long-term relationships. Um, sometimes people just move too quickly and then later find out, you know, we don't actually have that great of a relationship, but here we are, we're in the same house or we've got a kid or, it, you know, that kind of thing can happen. I would love to get into red flags that you see in relationships. Maybe, and maybe they're the same red flags in a, in a committed marriage versus a dating relationship. But because you are so aware of what extreme versions of unhealthy relationships look like, I'd love to see what you're looking for in, in what might potentially become a dangerous situation. And I'll just say, when we started talking about doing this interview with you, I, I was looking up some of your work and, and finding the statistics that you mentioned about domestic violence. And I actually was just really floored about how much of an issue this is. And it, and it, and it sort of reinforces the idea that this must be something that we're just not talking about. There must be enough shame associated with these situations that they stay underground until something tragic happens. Yeah. And, and I think that's right. It's, it's not an easy topic to think about. And some of the times we think about the topic of domestic violence, we think of it as this other thing that happens in yeah. other relationships. Mm -hmm. We only see it on a lifetime movie or, or, you know, something like that. But the truth is when you consider unhealthy relationships, there are a lot of versions of that. There, there are various patterns of violence. And so there is the pattern that we tend to think of, which is like the stereotypical, you know, controlling, abusive, monitoring, punishing, physical violent relationship. And those are awful and they're dangerous. But there's this whole spectrum of other kinds of things that happen in relationships, including uh, emotional abuse, you know, just cruelty in its various versions. And that's um, about a third of relationships have had some of that from both men and women. And so, you know, I was referring to this, uh, this kind of controlling, monitoring abuse, we would call it intimate terrorism, where one person is jealous, they, they're doing things like um, monitoring where the other person is, you know, texting, why aren't you responding? Don't wear that shirt. Don't talk to that guy. This version of intimate terrorism is usually more male to female. But there's another version of domestic violence that we, we refer to as situational couple violence. And that's when couples are just bad at monitoring their emotional regulation. They just lose control. They yell, scream, they throw, they push. And it can get dangerous too. And it's actually more common than the other version, but it also just doesn't, you just don't see it much because people don't talk about that in testimony meeting or with their mm -hmm. friends. And that, that version can be, is more likely to be bi-directional, for example, but two people doing that. Um, and I, I don't want to again, minimize any version of violence because they can all be dangerous, but that version tends to be less serious than the, the one I was describing earlier, the intimate terrorism. Mm -hmm. Could you, could you define to maybe give us a working definition for emotional abuse too, because I, I want to validate hundred percent that that's a real thing, but also are there situations where maybe that, the, that phrase could be used hyperbolically because we've all been, you know, unkind. We've all done things we regret that probably don't rise to the level of emotional abuse. So I would, I would love to hear how you, how you define that. Yeah, it's a good question because it's hard to define. I will say that, you know, sometimes we, you can see it in people who are just cruel and name calling and, um, putting someone down. They're using sarcasm. They're controlling someone else. But at other times, you're right that it's tricky to tell is, is somebody just being oversensitive because they, let's say I've got a client who's coming and they're talking to me and their parents were really critical. And so they get really touchy about any sort of comment. So you have to try to disentangle the intent, the impact. 
And that stuff is pretty tough to figure out. I mm. mean, it's tough for professionals to figure for out. For like a bishop. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they're going to get, um, <clears throat> you know, people coming to them saying, I'm in an abusive situation. That's hard to sort through. So, so I'm doing this big research project right now where we're interviewing people from all over the place, asking them about healthy and unhealthy types of behaviors in their relationship. And so they're describing things like honesty versus dishonesty or respect versus meanness, aggression, um, commitment versus betrayal, uh, taking <coughs> accountability versus being defensive. And so if you look on the unhealthy side of all those, that can be some of the things that can turn abusive. And you see that in abusive, um, emotionally abusive behavior. Um, the research uses terms like contempt, which mm. is this this uh, disgust or this conveying of just, I, I think you're beneath me or I respond to you with eye rolling or um, sarcasm. Those kinds of things, you know, that the most objective people would say, that's a hurtful thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. I start to say that's emotional abuse. So would you say, is it the intent that is really indicative of, of an abusive situation or, or how extreme it, it becomes? Yeah, some of both. So there's the intent, which is, am I, in a, am I in an angry, aggressive place where I'm trying to stick it to you or punish you because you're doing something I don't like? There's also um, the intensity or how severe it is. There's also how frequent, like what's the pattern here? Occasionally, you know, even the best of folks have their weak moments. They might say or do things that are hurtful. The healthier couples come back together. They talk about that. They work it through. They take responsibility for their, their you know, role in the, in the conflict or the problem. Unhealthy folks dismiss it, sweep it under the rug, continue to blame the other person for it. And so you look for patterns like that, you know, how, yeah. how frequent is it and how severe is it? So I'm imagining this spectrum uh, of behavior and I could imagine someone and I, this, I relate to this, that you think, you know, if, if abuse is on one side of the spectrum, then zero conflict must be on the other side. And so, so talk about relationships where there is, where it, where at least on the surface, it looks like there is no conflict. Yeah, that's that's a funny issue because relationships by their very definition have conflict in them because they're composed of two different people. There are no two people who feel and think the same way, right? Everyone has differences of opinion. So sometimes you will hear, you'll hear people say things like, divorces happen because of money or divorces happen because of housework or sex or parenting. Those are just all areas where almost always people are going to have differences. Mm. That's just how it is. You know, if if I go to the Walmart with a hundred bucks, I will come home with different stuff than my wife <laughs> yeah. would with a hundred bucks. It's the same with, you know, ideas about parenting or intimacy or whatever. So the issue isn't isn't the the, the differences. The issue is how those are handled. So coming back to your conflict issue. So I would say, if somebody says or sees a relationship that appears to have no conflict, it's probably more conflict avoidance than it is no conflict. And the LDS culture can sometimes facilitate that a little bit because we have these values about being kind and, and not wanting to hurt each other's feelings. The problem comes when somebody genuinely has something that they feel like is important they want to talk about, but, but they feel like they can't. The other thing that can happen with that is... Um, in an unhealthy relationship, some people have learned that it doesn't work to bring up a concern because they get punished for it. They've learned that they 
have to just go along with or placate the other person to say, you're right, I'm wrong. There are people who just yeah. won't bring up or talk about things that they probably just need to talk through. Yeah. And if they can do it in a healthy way, they're going to make progress. And how often do you see a model in which there's, it's not just avoidant, but it is sort of like one, one partner is sort of always dominant or superior yeah. in which the other partner has almost lost a sense of a sense of self and almost believes that their opinions are are the opinions of the other person in that situation how would someone break out of you know break out of that especially in, and i'm talking about situations where both partners are well-intentioned but that for whatever reason this this That's is the dance yeah. yeah it is and it's a hard one i did a, a project <clears throat> looking at almost that exact thing and what we found was somebody who's in this high power role they often do things like push their version on the other person, like insist that the other person do what they want them to do, feel what they want them to feel or say what they want them to say. And what happens is the person who's getting that kind of pressure will adopt that. They will kind of absorb it and then they will doubt themselves and they say, well, maybe I really was wrong. Maybe I should have just kept my opinions to myself. So people lose a sense of their own voice and autonomy. This one woman, I remember the quote from the research project well, because it really stuck out with me. She said, after being in an abusive relationship for many years, she said, one day I went to the mall and I didn't even know what I liked anymore. I just had could, I had forgotten who I was and what my opinions were. So again, I mean, you, you talk about being well-intentioned. Most people who, even who are unhealthy, still don't see themselves as being unhealthy. Sometimes they do. Yeah. A lot of times though, there's a lot of rationalization and excuse. And so it sometimes takes some outside help or you know, for somebody that's lost their voice in a relationship, they might need to go talk to someone else or go mm -hmm. read some things. Um, yeah. Because it's always a concern when it feels like it's out of balance that way. Both yeah. people should have a, a voice. Yeah. And both people at times should accommodate the other one. Yeah. yeah. And I like that. I like that word balance because I'm sure there are so many people, you know, listening right now who are saying, I recognize this in myself. I recognize that I usually accommodate or I usually get my way. And and maybe there's some sort, there's something out of balance that's pinging and that they're recognizing. So I I, but I, I would love for you to talk specifically, what, what do you do? How do you take that, those first steps? If both, if both people would prefer to be in a healthier space. I'm a therapist, so I'm kind of biased that way to say, hey, go get professional help. Get to a space where you have somebody that can help each of you speak up in a safe place. You can do that in a way that's structured because some people have kind of abdicated their opinions or their voice. Um, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they yeah. came from unhealthy uh, earlier situations or families, or maybe that's just happened in their relationship. But um, but sometimes they just need that kind of encouragement. And then a person who's maybe not been a good listener or been or has been more prone to running over someone else's voice needs to learn how to do that too. And most people with some work can recognize that's actually better for them as well. You mm -hmm. know, people benefit in a relationship that is balanced. How, how might someone or one of these couples that finds themselves in a situation like this overcome what is potentially still a stigma about going to see a, a marriage <laughs> counselor or therapist, yeah. especially given that in that type of uh, in that type of relationship, maybe there hasn't actually been a lot of conflict because of the because of the dynamic that's arisen. And so it's like, well, why would we do that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think the stigma has changed some, at least yeah. in my professional career of whatever it's been, 25 plus years. I, in our LDS culture, there used to be a little more of a stigma for seeking help that was beyond just, you know, what we do with our spiritual work. And, you know, that's all well and good. But I, I think of it like 
if you were having other kinds of physical symptoms, <clears throat> you would not only go see somebody that's helpful, but you wouldn't expect your Relief Society president to diagnose your thyroid <laughs> issue necessarily. So, so I depending would just on say, her profession, <laughs> yeah, that's just what we're here for, right? Um, I uh, one one way maybe to help people get more used to the idea of going for help is to start with things like a podcast like this or with a blog or with, uh, you know, something online that talks about healthy and unhealthy yeah, relationship yeah. behaviors. It feels like lower pressure. Yeah, exactly. Read yeah. a book. To, to what extent do you think that sort of traditional understanding of patriarchy or the idea of presiding might sometimes contribute to inequality in marriages? Yeah, it's a good question because I would just say that somebody who is in sort of an unhealthy position to begin with in a marriage, they're going to use or find things that help them maintain power or privilege or, or whatever. So, so the church, you know, um, if you, if you look at scriptures, for example, you can find things in there to support all kinds of ideologies, personal, familial, whatever you can find yeah. things to support racism or beating your child or, um, you know, slavery. I mean, you look at the old Testament, there's some pretty strange stuff in there. Yeah. But that's if somebody's doing that, they're cherry picking out things to to kind of use. And I've seen that. And it's always a little stomach turning to see people use that kind of thing. Like, you don't know your place in this relationship. I'm the head of the house, for example. Yeah. And, I, and I've seen it. I've also seen it in other types of Christian clients or, or, or other religious, religiously affiliated clients who use those kind of things. I would just say, if you look at the restored gospel and the kinds of things we hear in conference, the kind of things you read, um, even in scripture, you know, the, the majority of those things talk about love and respect and all are alike unto God. So if somebody's misusing those things, it's a problem. Yeah. And they can and they do. But the church, like any big organization, is, um, is a big structure that includes hierarchy. And anytime you have an organization where there's hierarchy, there's going to be abuses in that hierarchy. Whether that's Hollywood, whether that's a business, whether that's education or a church or other churches, there will be people who will misuse their position to get what they want, to get their ideas pushed forward, to uh, be hurtful. And I'm not at all trying to suggest we don't need to keep working on this issue. We really do. It's an important issue. I, I think that I think the leaders of the church these days are working hard on, on addressing this. But I will also say it's a very human problem. It just mm. happens when you put people in positions of authority. It happens in yeah. families. You know, it happens where people abuse their power in family situations. So it's a really important uh, conversation. And we need to keep having it in the church. Yeah. And and I, I hope we can. Yeah. That's really interesting. But like, this is just how it shows up in this context. Exactly. Like, th yeah. this is going to be our, our way to wrestle with it. Right. This yeah. is our world for people who are close and, and yeah. engaged in the church. It's an important place for them. And so it, when if something goes wrong, it's going to be very painful. And that's yeah. really hard to see. What what kind of checks, I mean, you mentioned a couple, but what kind of checks are you seeing in our culture that could really be a protection in relationships to encourage equality? Well, for starters, I hear more these days in church leadership and in general conference and on the website about, about abuse, for example, and about respectful just relationships. About President Nelson just talked about it in last general conference, as did Sister Yi and others. Uh, these are good, th these are good developments to say, let's be really overt and say these are unacceptable kinds of behaviors. The church's resources have changed and they've gotten more explicit in their help for leaders, for example, to say people should be believed. 
You should never encourage somebody to stay in an unhealthy situation. That's different and more explicit than it used to be. Again, if you have a leader who maybe is just having a couple come to them and they're hearing different kinds of stories, they don't know what to do with that. They're, they're going to want to help the marriage and they're going to say things like, you know, I hope you guys can make this work or, you know, you should stay married. That's what we believe in. That may or may not be the best advice for a marriage that's deeply troubled. And, um, the other thing that happens there is we sort of assume we'll be able to see, you said earlier, like, like about abuse that we, we think of it as this, this uncommon thing, but it's pretty common, but we just don't see it. And and I'm, I'm reemphasizing that because like a, a Relief Society president or a bishop might say, well, I just don't see that in, the, in these guys. This guy's like the best young men's leader we've ever had. And he might be, or this woman might be great in the nursery, but she might be, she might, she's great in the church and in nursery, but at home, boy, there's some unhealthy things to mm-hmm. her kids and her husband that, that it's hard to see. And if yeah. you're getting conflicting stories, you might just not know what mm-hmm. to do with that. I think we're, um, we're talking more about it and that helps our leaders to say, look, you know, this is a complex thing. Let's yeah. Not rush to judgment. Another project I was involved with, with one of my students at another university, we interviewed people who had been in violent relationships and they said one of the least helpful things was for leaders to tell them what to do. And they, mm-hmm. they were talking about church leaders of other faiths, but they were also talking about professionals because wow. they've already heard that stuff. They, they tend to know, you know, that things are problematic and what happens is they'll retreat further <clears throat> and, they won't come back, you know, they're, they're more likely to come back to you or a friend or a family member if that person is kind and understanding and recognizes some of the challenges of getting out. So, so I'm just saying they don't need another person telling them how to live their life. They already have that in a number yeah. of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe we could, if it's okay, and Aubrey, if this sounds okay. good, maybe we could yeah. shift gears a little bit and talk about relationships that are not abusive, yeah. um, that are, but that, you know, are trying to, trying to get better. Um, and yeah. I think this is, this is everybody, right? Um, so at Faith Matters, we try to adhere to something called the Gottman ratio, which I imagine you're familiar mm-hmm. with, comes from psychologist John Gottman, who did some work and discovered that successful relationships tended to have at least a ratio of five positive interactions to every one negative interaction. I'm curious, what, do you know anything more about that research or does that align with, with what you found? Yeah, Gottman's been doing stuff. He's still doing stuff. He's been doing it for about 50 years. A lot of people know of his work because he's raised, I think, a number of important issues. But that ratio is relevant because we are wired. We call it a negativity bias. Think about when you give a talk in sacrament meeting and you get a bunch of people saying you did a great job. But then one person says, well, I kind of was bored or whatever. That's the one you're going to (laughs) remember. Right? We're we're just more attuned to that kind of thing. And there's, there's various theories on that. But I think part of it is just um, we are disproportionately affected by negative events. You know, they they take a toll on us more so than do the positive things that we do in our relationship. So we need to invest a lot of time in positive stuff. But part of it's because of um, like we talk about fight or flight or flee, like like physical reactions to things. We are we're biological creatures. We react very negatively to threats. Or perceived mm-hmm. threats. And so, for example, in a marriage, somebody might say, wow, you know, that really annoyed me that you did that. Or <laughs> you smell funny or whatever. We we might perceive that as a threat and we might react like a threat. It's not a threat. It's just a comment. But, but when we feel threatened or abandoned, again, these are very like deep physical reactions, we react strongly and we get sometimes defensive. We pull away. You can't, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk anymore. 
or we get aggressive and some people are more likely to do that and start saying or doing things that are um, rude. So we tend to react strongly to what we think is coming at us from a sort of threatening perspective. And is, is any type of conflict a negative interaction when you're thinking about this ratio or could conflict handled in a particular way not be negative at all? Yeah, it's not always easy for sure. Um, and and yet, as I said, everybody has differences. So relationships are actually this real opportunity for growth and for yeah. learning more about yourself. You know, we just, we we do things in relationships and we get feedback. We learn how we come across. We learn that our way isn't the only way. We learn that the way we do Christmas isn't the only way to do Christmas. You know, yeah. that's, or, and especially when you have kids, right? You you bump up against these things that you're like, oh man, I thought I was a more patient person. And <laughs> yeah. I was. So so if I am talking with my spouse and she says, hey, when you said that, it bothered me or it hurt my feelings or, or whatever, like that's helpful feedback if I'm open to it. And so that's, again, the key is can people have these conversations in a way that they're open, that they take responsibility for, that they are thoughtful in the way they bring these things up. That's they they grow together and they become better people. And do you have, I don't know what the opposite of a red flag is, maybe a maybe a green flag. What And this could be totally anecdotal or just qualitative based on what you've seen uh, working with lots of people. What are some things that you see that make you say, okay, this is this is probably going to work? I would say look, there's a lot of things, but, but two that come to mind right away, uh, well, maybe three, I would say respect. So somebody that's mm-hmm. just, you know, you hear about just being kind, being nice, somebody that's thoughtful about someone else's perspective and they treat other people as though they're important and they're deserving of good treatment they're, that they see the other person as important as they are. And that's conveyed not just in words, but in actions and in the ways people adapt and adjust to each other. Also accountability, which means I can take responsibility for the time that I got a little annoyed or I said something I shouldn't have said, or maybe I was in a bad place that day or whatever, you know, somebody that's somebody that will go and and have that conversation. And I, and I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this one lately because I studied not only abuse, but also addictions. And it's one of the very first things that you will have addressed in like a 12 step group is accountability. It's just that mm-hmm. honesty that you do. You can't stay in denial about this any longer. You have to take responsibility for your behavior at some level. That's a healthy way of dealing with conflict. Now, there are others, maybe honesty ties into that, you know, just being really mm-hmm. thoughtful and aware of your own level of um, accuracy and you don't try to distort or exaggerate or minimize your partner or exaggerate your own contribute, you know, those kinds yeah. of things yeah. that, that ties into a lot of things. So those are just a few. That, those that are great. Mind, yeah. yeah. L- let me ask you, oh, sorry. I feel like, okay. No, thanks. Um, this is good marital interaction <laughs> right here. <laughs> um, I, well, I feel, okay. Well, thank you. Um, I guess the question, the question that I, that I want to ask is how plastic are yeah. relationships? Mm. Do you, how often do you see people internalize that they need to change and change? Mm-hmm. It's it's like this bell curve where, you know, on one end is the folks who are just so stuck and never going to change. And the other end is the people who are really good at this and they're they're adapting and they're working. And then in the middle is probably more folks who it's not easy, but they're working on it. And so, yes, relationships can and do change all the time. In fact, they never really stay exactly the same, even though, you know, at some level, people are the people who they, they are who they are. They keep the same personalities that they have. But. It's also true that people grow and learn together. Again, like raising kids is one example. You kind of change as you learn things. You kind of become mm-hmm. hopefully more flexible, for example. I know 
my standards for cleanliness changed with, with each kid I had. We've had six. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. And so, uh, but, but, but yeah, I, I've, I've also seen people who I thought, you guys, there, there's no way you're going to make it. This is just some of the mm. worst stuff. And I've seen people rally and pull a Hail Mary and come around and do better. Relationships are just complicated. Every single one is its own mm. thing. But ultimately, um, if two people are willing to work at it and they're both willing to change, they can do it. Yeah. I would love, I know you've written um, and talked a lot about this idea of deception in relationships. Yeah. And I'd love to talk about that and flesh it out a little bit more because this this feels like a complicated word in a relationship to me because I can see how this is maybe just another spectrum where you could be impeccably honest in a way that actually is hurtful and maybe unnecessary. And and also maybe that line gets really blurry because you start wanting to protect yourself. And so yeah. maybe it's not, you don't have the best of intentions for the relationship. So could you just talk about how you explain this, you know, honesty versus deception in healthy relationships? I think of it much more than just literal honesty or the meaning of words, right? Mm. We, we think about, you know, what somebody says um, can mean a lot of different things depending on tone. Uh, I have this yeah. um, Venn diagram I sh I've shown that in the middle it says, hey, buddy, and that can be calling <laughs> your dog. It can be starting a fight. Oh, that's amazing. It can be seeing that's a friend, right? And so... <laughs> That's why our jobs are hard, right? We um, we have to sort through the, all that stuff in a relationship. And so yeah. honesty, coming back to that, I read a quote not long ago. This is after I had written a whole book about honesty and deception in relationships. But the quote was from, it was in a Richard Rohr book. He's oh. a he's a really this, a thinker oh, that I really oh, like. Oh, fans of Richard Yeah, such good stuff. <laughs> he quotes a, um, a German Jesuit theologian, Joseph Piper, who said, uh, relationships are the natural habitat for truth. And, and I think of that because I'm like, if in a relationship you're always seeking for authenticity, accuracy, and this of course includes kindness and accountability, there's so many things that go into seeking for truth. Yeah. And again, that means, did what I say come across in a way that I didn't intend it? That's different than somebody who's saying, well, I didn't mean it that way. You took it that way, right? Yeah. You're in sort of a defensive attacking mode. So from blame, from rationalization, from anger, on into the healthier versions of truth, which are, you know, being kind and accountable. And it doesn't mean, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I'm just being honest with you. You look yeah. terrible. That's not really what it's getting at, right? That's somebody yeah. who's being more brutal than honest. So it just takes work, I think, to find. It feels like you're talking about more of an energy in the relationship as opposed yeah. to like the technical words exactly but yeah that's because you can that's harder out. and interesting yeah you can argue yeah. the, the meaning of words forever yeah. and, that, and another thing couples will do is they'll say well i didn't say that or you said that and they'll argue about what happened or what they said and that's not usually useful either because <laughs> memories change and people do have different recollections but yeah it's yeah. more about integrity and so how, how do you talk to couples about when there is anger and like is there a way to do anger that that is actually connecting i like this idea of honesty and, and integrity. It's an, it's a matter of integrity to be forthright about those feelings, because it seems like you either have that option or you have this option of what really is deception. Yeah. Anger is an interesting one. Anger. It's, it's maybe the only negative emotion that is an accusatory emotion, right? If you're it angry, it's at yeah. somebody, <laughs> yeah. something yeah. you made me this way. And it, and it feels that way. It turns, it turns someone around you into an enemy. 
And, and that's why it, it can be deceptive and often is because let's say you get annoyed in a marriage situation. It may be that something happened that should be addressed. It may also be that you came home tired, you're worn out from other things, that maybe you did something that you shouldn't have done and you're feeling sort of defensive about that and another person called you on it. Yeah. So you, you kind of have to take time to sort through it a little bit. And so you maybe say something about it, but it also might be useful to say, let me get this, let me get to a better place to mm. find the truth of this situation. Let me even sleep on it. Let me wait and see if tomorrow this is still bugging me. If it is, it might be important to talk about it because sometimes anger is a natural reaction to injustice, right? Or something hurtful has happened. Maybe yeah. I was treated badly, but in other cases, it might be um, just as well to say, you know what? I'm I'm in a better place. Okay. So you don't subscribe to don't ever go to bed angry. I don't, you subscribe, don't subscribe to, to that <laughs> advice. Yeah, I don't. I think sometimes people actually need to just go to freaking bed, right? Yeah. <laughs> they need to go eat something or take a walk because they're just wiped out. We all are under a lot of stuff and um, we need things like rest and nutrition. And like I said, it takes a while to find the truth of a situation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've been listening to, I mean, like everyone in the US, I think Andrew Huberman, who's this uh, professor at Stanford. And I, he's, uh, he's sort of enlightened me as the value of, of sleep. And I couldn't tell you what's going on hormonally, but so much changes during those, during those eight hours. Yeah. I can only imagine that it, in, in some yeah. cases it would be much healthier to, yeah. to wake up and, and discuss something. Yep. And when you're having a, um, a conversation that's, you know, that maybe is conflict or has potential for conflict, I guess there's a, in like pop psychology and media, there's this idea that you should use I statements, mm -hmm. right? Um, is that true? And what other verbal, uh, rules of thumb might there be when people are are engaging in that type of conversation? There are a lot of skills, like I statements is one. Uh, being a reflective listener is another. Those are fine and they're good if people are using them with the right intent. Mm -hmm. If they're not, you can teach the skill and somebody will be like, I think you're a doofus. <laughs> right. That's not very helpful if they're still defensive uh, like the intent and the virtues are more important than the skills that yeah, are on the surface skills sense. are great if people are using them with the right uh intention and so yeah. you know yeah you can teach that stuff and i think an i statement is is a good one because it gets back to what i was saying earlier about accountability it's better to say i'm just a little overloaded right now i'm upset I'm having a hard time. That's different than saying, why do you have to be so bipolar? Yeah. Or, you know, just take a shot at the other person. Yeah. That's not helpful. It's better to just say, I'm upset and I need to kind of figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. Any other lines to not cross to keep in mind? Because I, I think when you're really flooded and you're having a lot of negative emotions, it's easy to kind of lose yourself, lose touch with who you want to be and how mm -hmm. you want to show up. So what would you say kind of as we wrap up? To just keep in mind, uh, here's a line to not cross. Like, here's something that when you can't feel, when you can't remember all everything else, like, just remember, like, this is, these are your, these are the boundaries you're going to maintain, even when you're feeling mm. furious or, or devastated or exhausted, or, you know, these are, these are my rules. Yeah. I like how you say you lose track with who, of who, of who you are, because that's exactly what happens when I would just say, when people start to find themselves getting flooded, as you say, or escalated, they are starting to think and see in a way that's no longer constructive or useful. And they're probably yeah. going to say things that are not helpful at that point. In fact, I often ask couples that I'll say, when you got really escalated and you guys raised your voices, or you started yelling, did you leave that conversation saying that was really helpful? We really got through some good stuff. And no, not <laughs> usually, right? They're usually like, no, we said and did stuff that was damaging. Anytime you're getting to a point where you know 
um, yeah, your heart rate's up, you're fired up physically, you're stomping around, you're flushed. That's probably anything that comes after that is probably not going to be very helpful. And that's the time people are going to say or do things like you're referring to that are cruel or they, they cross a physical boundary of pushing or slamming or slapping that, you know, anytime you cross a boundary like that, it's done damage. Yeah. And that's, that's a problem because there's some really good relationships out there who sometimes really take a step back when they cross those kind of boundaries. Somebody says something really mean or somebody throws something. Um, much better to take a time out and go let the dust settle a little yeah. bit. Yeah. When you're feeling it in your body, this game over yep. for now. Yeah. I, I think that's such a good rule of thumb because then, because it requires zero critical thinking. Just saying. If we get to this point, we take a time out, we go to separate places, we settle down and we remember who we are and what our relationship values are. The truth is most people are good people at their core. They love each other. They want to be a good person. And it's when they lose that, they mm -hmm. they get, you know, so caught up in the emotion when they start to say and do things that, you know, they don't feel good about those things either. Nobody likes, right. to, be, nobody likes to be hurt, but nobody likes to be hurtful either. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Is there anything that feels important to say as we kind of wrap up that we've maybe missed? I just say relationships are one of those things that people say on their deathbed, I wish I had spent more time right. in. Yeah. And so it's worth working on it. You know, it's worth spending time even when you're getting into a relationship, spend some time with those things. You know, yeah. more, a lot of people spend a lot of time on Candy Crush or TV, but <laughs> not as much time saying, hey, let's work on that five to one ratio. Let's go yeah. Go rock climb together, or go to a good restaurant or go to the theater. Those yeah. are those are all good things. I value those things. They're they're important. Beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so thanks much. Thanks so much, Jason. No, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Awesome. It's been great. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Jason Whiting. And a big thanks to Jason for coming on the show. And if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really does help us to get the word out about Faith Matters. And we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening. And remember, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.